actually the first chunk of the series put together by Michael Lavarchi and Andy Croft really is about the foundations. Before you kind of get into some of the more supernatural stuff, as it were, they take a chunk of time just to make sure that our foundations, our thinking, our heads, our hearts are in the right place uh, for being involved in supernatural things. And really, we're kind of just finishing that first chunk, chapter, part off this morning. And uh, under the umbrella title, Do Whatever He Tells You. And we're just going to look at some passages and see what we can learn. But I just want you to, in your mind, understand the things that we've spoken about so far in this series. Really, we're trying to set a good foundation. We're wanting to be involved in supernatural things for the right reason, with the right heart, making sure that God gets the glory. Uh, and really, that's where we're... And then next term, we'll get into some of the more individual, specific, supernatural acts that really God wants us to be involved in in our everyday lives, which is just crazy, isn't it? I mean, if you were God, would you really have us lot getting involved in some supernatural stuff? It really is crazy. I mean, he's just so good at it and just does it. Stars, healing, done. But he, for some reason, he's just decided. He's just decided. No, no, I'm going to do it through you. And uh, crazy. But there he has. Let me pray. Lord, I, I pray that this morning you would speak to us. You would open up our ears. You would open up our hearts. And through what we see in your word, things that have been written down that you said and did. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, might you teach us. Might you encourage us. Might you set that good foundation in our thinking and in our hearts, Lord. And, and we do pray for the end goal is that, Lord, we might see more of your supernatural activity in our lives and through us. We pray and ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me read uh, for you John 2, verse 1 to 11. I don't think I'll put it all in your notes, but I'll read it a little bit more. It's a very well-known passage. John 2, verse 1 to 11 says this. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used for the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. How many bottles is 20 to 30 gallons? It's lots, isn't it? I mean, this is the entire wine section of Morrison's right here, right? 20 to 30 gallons each. Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned to wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. Some things don't change in 2,000 years, do they? 
Give them the good stuff to begin with and then we'll bring out the white lightning. They'll never know any difference. Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Jesus' first miracle was not a mighty healing one where maybe a lame person walked or maybe a blind person saw or maybe a leper was cured of leprosy or someone who had stopped breathing and was dead was brought back to life. It was turning water into wine at a wedding. Wow. See what I did there with the W's? See, it's almost like I've done this before. Now, I suppose how much you like wine and how desperate you are for it might determine how much of a mighty miracle you think it is. I've been the father of the bride at my eldest daughter's wedding, and I get that running out of wine on such an occasion is less than ideal, but it's not actually life-changing. You're going to end up with a few disgruntled family and friends, but it's not the end of the world. Some of Jesus' miracles absolutely turned people's lives around. Absolutely. This one didn't. And at first sight, it would appear that Jesus only did it to placate his mum. I mean, it was Mary who said to Jesus, they have no more wine. It's, and he replies, woman, why do you involve me? Nothing to do with me, nothing to do with you, mum. Really? Could have bought the rebuke. Don't talk to your mum like that. Jesus, not that I would rebuke him like that, but I mean, it, when you read it, don't you think some of those things? However, what Mary says and what she instructs the servants is something that is foundational to the everyday supernatural. It's foundational to the everyday supernatural, but it's very easy to miss it when you're reading the story. Do whatever he tells you. That's what she tells the servants. And so these words are addressed to us today as much as they were to the servants back then. If you want to be involved in miraculous stuff, everyday supernatural stuff, right here at the beginning, the foundation of this one is Mary telling the servants, do whatever Jesus tells you. I don't know about you, but sometimes my attitude is more along the lines of, Lord, I'll do whatever you tell me as long as I agree with you, or as long as it seems sensible, as long as it seems realistic, as long as it doesn't make me too uncomfortable, as long as I don't look too foolish, as long as I don't look too passionate for Jesus. However, we must understand that whatever we call that, you know that list of excuses? That thing that we say, you know, we rationale, you know, we know better than you. Are you sure? It's never going to work. I did it before. It didn't work. But yeah, we run. Is it just me? We run through all the reasons why not, you know. Whatever we call that, that is not obedience. That is not obedience. Obedience means that once we've established that it's God telling us, whatever it is that he's telling us, whether it makes sense or not, whether we agree or not, whether it seems realistic or not, whether it makes us feel comfortable or not, it's irrelevant. Obedience is doing whatever God 
is telling us. And at the wedding, after Mary had told the servants, do whatever he tells you, Jesus says to them, go fill those stone jars with water. Which surely could have prompted some objections from the servants. They might have thought, nah, Jesus, it's a wine shortage, not a water shortage. Why are we filling stone jars with water? There's plenty of, these guests are at a party. It's party time. No one's asking for water. There's no designated drivers here, right? They want wine. It may be as well. The servants are thinking, man, there's a few people that have had a few too many sherbets here, but they're not that drunk. They are going to notice that you're giving them water. They might have come from a stone jar, but it's water. But the servants obey. Do you notice that? They, they obey. And then Jesus, I think, tells them to do something which is even crazier. He says, now take a cup of that water, what you know is water, because you put the water in there. Take some of that water from the stone jar and give it to the master of ceremonies. You know the guy who's in charge. You know the guy who's paid to look after the wedding, to make sure that everything is running right. The guy who's going to notice if the chicken isn't chicken and the water is wine. This is his job. And yet, somewhere on the journey between the stone jars and the master of ceremonies, the miracle happens. And that water becomes wine. And how did that happen? It happened because those servants did exactly what Jesus told them. What Jesus told them, I don't think, made any sense to them. Those servants must have been completely mystified. But obedience is sometimes doing things that he says and we don't understand. And if we don't understand it, once we know it's him, whether we want to or not, once we hear his voice, once we hear his voice, obedience is doing what he said. And the truth is, in terms of everyday supernatural, where God wants this supernatural stuff to flow through us individually and as a church, the truth is that if we want to see broken lives and broken bodies and broken hearts and generally the brokenness that we see in our society, if we want to see people like that transformed into whole and free children of God, then we are going to need to be those who do whatever he says. We are going to need to be those who do whatever he says. Because if we've got our list of, but what about, 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 by the time all that has happened, the moment's gone. The person has passed. Sometimes it's not going to make us feel comfortable. Sometimes it may not make sense. But obedience to Jesus is the practical outworking of our faith in him and our expression of love for him. I'll say that again, I don't like it. And any statement I don't like, I have to say again. Obedience to Jesus is the practical outworking of our faith in him and the expression of our love for him. So let's just think about obedience and friendship, because Jesus had some stuff to say about this. 
Not only does God desire to have many adopted children, but he also wants those children to be his friends. It's an amazing verse. John 15, 15. Jesus says this to his disciples. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. That's a thing worth sticking on a fridge magnet in your kitchen, isn't it? I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Wow. Jesus saying, I'm going to reveal everything to you. The whole family, whatever God reveals to me, I'm going to reveal to you because I consider you to be my friends. But you know, in the verse before, Jesus tells how we become his friends. Because the verse before, he says this, you are my friends if you do what I command. John 15, 14. You're my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his father's business. Instead, I call you friends. And therefore, obedience is the key to friendship with Jesus. Obedience is the key to friendship with Jesus. Now, that is different to human friendships, right? It's different than human friendships. If you were only my friend because you did what I commanded you, that would be manipulative. That would be domineering. It would make my life easier, right? It would make my life easier. Just do what I say. But it would be wrong. That's not how human friendships work. But our relationship with Jesus is unique. It's not modeled on. It's not based on. It's not a mirror of our human friendships. Sometimes when I hear people talking about their relationship with God, I think, gosh, I think you've, I think you've reduced God down to, to, to a human level. And you kind of want to relate to him as if he's your bestest mate. Well, he can be your friend, but he's always your God. <laughs> we are in a loving relationship with God. God does love us. He proved that when he put his son on the cross for us. But we are not in an equal relationship with God. It is not equal. He is the Lord and we are his servants. He is the king and we are his subjects. He is the general and we are the soldiers. Friendship with God is a wonderful privilege. It's a wonderful privilege. And that privilege really is accessed by obedience to him because of who he is. Let's think about stepping out of the boat. Like the servants at the wedding, you can't get around the fact that Jesus sometimes told his disciples to do things that made no sense. On one occasion, he says to his disciples, go to the next village. There you're going to find a cult. It's never been ridden. Untie it. And bring it to me. And if anybody asks you what you're doing, like the person that owns the cult, right? Just tell them the Lord needs it. That's great, isn't it? Like going into a car showroom, isn't it? Thanks very much. I'll just grab the keys. What are you doing with that Porsche Carrera? The Lord just needs it. It's all right. Don't worry. It's just crazy. Another time, 
He sends them into the village and tells them, watch out for a man carrying a jar of water. When you see him, follow him and ask him where his guest room is because Jesus is going to turn up and he wants to eat his Passover meal with a whole number of disciples in your guest room. Imagine that. It's like following someone coming out of Waitrose, isn't it? Following them along and saying, oh, you just got your shopping in, fantastic. Just to let you know, Jesus is coming. He's going to have a meal in your house. We'll be there in half an hour. You know, that's, it's just crazy. And another strange one we'll look at in a bit more detail is from Matthew 14. But this one is not about turning water into wine. This one is about walking on water. Walking on it. I think I'll put this one in your notes. Matthew 14, 22, 33. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. After he dismissed them, he went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake, walking on the water. We've heard the story. We don't get surprised by it anymore, do we? Walking on the water. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It's I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Do. Right? We read the story, we just don't, it doesn't hit us anymore. Lord, if it's you, tell me, come to you on the water. Come, he said. Oh dear, now you're in it, Peter. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat and walked on the water, came towards Jesus. Yeah. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, began to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand, caught him. You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Let's just focus on a few things. Firstly, it says Jesus made them get in the boat. Apparently, I'm no expert, but the commentators say in the original Greek, this word made is a strong word. This is no mild suggestion. No, no. Go out into the lake, right? Here's Jesus. He's sending his disciples into the Sea of Galilee in a storm in the middle of the night. Sometimes I think Jesus deliberately sends us into the storms of life or allows the storms of life to rage around us because actually that's where we can see the greatest miracles occur and that's where we get the greatest opportunity to draw close to him. I don't like that. I'd rather that we drew close to God when we sat on the, you know, uh, paradise island drinking cold mojitos. But that's not the way it seems to be. I actually think COVID was not, you know, a storm that God sent. It was clearly a storm that God allowed because he's God in charge. But I think it was also a moment for Christians, including us, to either draw close to him or not to. I think that's what the storms of life have the potential to do. We either draw close to him or we don't. And that actually is what happens to Peter in the story. 
It's the early hours of the morning. The wind is howling. And Jesus walks to the disciples on top of the water through the waves. Just imagine that. Jesus, he's, this is how I picture him walking. Because, you know, he's walking on water. <laughs> I'm walking on water. But just picture it. Jesus, he's walking on water. Da, 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 no problem for me. I'm walking on the stuff. He probably didn't. He had a better attitude than me. I have that kind of attitude. I'm walking on water. He wouldn't have had that. But here he is, walking on water. And they think he's a ghost and they're terrified. And he sees their fear and he tells them to take courage. And they recognize Jesus' voice. And notice this, the fear starts to subside and faith starts to come. You can miss that in this story. But that is exactly what happens to fear when we hear God speaks. It starts to get replaced with faith. I think that's one of the many reasons why we need to read the Word of God. Because when we read the Word of God, we hear His truth. When we hear His truth, faith comes. And when faith comes, it causes fear to flee. I don't think fear disappears. If you imagine that fear just disappears, it will just go over time. I don't believe it will. I think fear never just disappears. I think fear needs to be replaced. It needs to have something brought in that is bigger and more powerful than it, that forces it to get out of the space it occupies in our heads and in our hearts. We need to actively replace fear with faith. And that is what happens in this incident with Peter. It's like he was fearful, crying out, and then he hears Jesus' voice. And the fear starts to get replaced. And actually, for Peter, he opens his mouth and says, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Such is the fear gone. Such is the faith coming that Peter, being Peter, the all-action superhero, the man who pulls out his sword, whips off an ear before he even thinks about it. His faith is rising. He opens his mouth. Jesus, tell me if it's you, come to me. In other words, Peter's saying, if you command it, I'll do it. If you command it, I'll be obedient. If you say it, I'll do it, and, and, and I'll be involved in the miracle. And Jesus gives that command, come. And Peter actually gets out of the boat. And he starts to walk on water. I'm amazed by that. Clearly nobody else is. Go try it next time you're at the swimming pool. Do that. Just see where you go. Straight down the bottom. Amazing. But then, then, then he takes his eyes off Jesus, looks at the waves, and what happens then? Fear comes, fear comes back and pushes faith out. That's what happens. Something going on inside. The faith that pushed the fear out, now he looks at the circumstances. Guess what? Faith comes, pushes, the fear comes, pushes the faith out. And he starts to sink. And he cries out, Lord, save me. Now, I don't know what your mental image of this story or what happened next is. Whether you think Peter succeeded or failed. But I'm going to paint two pictures for you and you can decide. Because what the Bible says happened next is this, verse 31 and 32. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. 
So the first mental image of this story could go along something like this. And I'm going to over-exaggerate to make the point, right? So I'm just giving you now. You know, Peter kind of begins to drown. Uh, he's crying out to Jesus. He's taking, you know, he's, he's covered with, you know, water. He's drowning. He's bobbing up and down. You know, the, the water's in his mouth. He's crying out to Jesus to save him. And Jesus, you know, maybe doing his best Baywatch routine, you know, into the water, get his little red thing out, whatever that is, you know, kind of gets him, swims back to the boat. Peter's kind of dragged up onto the boat, semi-conscious, coughing and spluttering. Jesus down doing his best, you know, lifesaver, <laughs> kind of whatever they do where that is. And, you know, does all that around. Peter comes around, coughing and spluttering. <laughs> the last bit of water comes out. And, uh, you know, Jesus, you have little faith, why did you doubt? That could be your mental image of this story here. Could be. Shouldn't be. Bit over the top, but could be. Now let me paint a slightly different picture for you. Because the passage says that Peter started to sink, and Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. No, he's not sinking. He's not sunk. He's not bobbing with his head under the water. Jesus does that, puts his arm or his hand on Peter and stops him from going any further down. And if Jesus held out his hand and seemingly stopped him from sinking, then there's the implication is that because Peter had got out of the boat and walked, he's away from the boat now. And Jesus is here and he starts to sink and he holds out his hand and he stops him sinking. And they're now here and the boat's still over there. They walked back to the boat, I think, arm in arm, hand in hand, Jesus got his arm out. They'd walked away from the boat. Peter walked away from the boat towards Jesus. Now they walk back to the boat together. If that's the case, can you imagine how Peter must have felt? Not only had he walked on water to get from the boat to Jesus, but now he is involved in this miracle because he's now walking arm in arm, hand in hand, back to the boat with Jesus. And maybe if they're walking arm in arm, involved in this miracle together, maybe Jesus' tone wasn't shouting angrily at Peter, but much more of a, Peter, Peter, you, you donut, why didn't, why, why didn't you carry on? You'd actually got out of the boat, you'd actually walked on water. And actually then, together, even when you started to sink, I grabbed hold of you and we walked back to the boat and got back in, you did it again. You did it again with me. Do you really think, Peter, that I would let you down or let you drown? You asked me and I said, come, and you were doing it, and you did it. And we walked back together, did we not, on the water. I don't think this is a story of Peter's failure, that if you read it, some people seem to think. Maybe the day he walked on water and then walked back to the boat on water, arm in arm with Jesus, was a tale he could have dined out for the rest of his life if the apostles would have been in the habit of dining out with stories of their time with Jesus, which they weren't. But what a moment. What a miracle. He was obedient when Jesus told him to get out of the boat. He walked on water. He got to be involved in the miracle. He got to be involved in the supernatural. 
And if we're thinking about everyday supernatural, then we're going to need to, figuratively speaking, get out of the boat. Because it's going to feel sometimes scary. It's going to challenge something of our safety. Maybe we too will feel like we're going to be slipping under the water. But surely, just like Peter, if Jesus is holding our hand, then surely we too can walk. We too can be involved in miracles. I don't think the main lesson we're supposed to learn in the storms of life is that if we wait long enough, they will blow over. I think the main lesson we're supposed to learn that in the storms of life, we are able to walk through them not because we are anything special in and of ourselves, but because we know the one who has commanded us and he's actually there holding our hands and he will get us back to the boat safely. But to do that, we therefore need to be obedient to what he says. I think this will work out differently for different ones of us, but in terms of the supernatural in our everyday lives, I think there are some key ingredients of Peter's story here. I think we are going to have to take some steps out of our comfort zone. We are going to have to put ourselves in places that feel uncomfortable. But do you know what? In that place, we might just discover an intimacy with Jesus and a strength from Jesus that will only come from living in obedience and dependency on him. And if we do that, guess what? That greater appreciation of who he is just might cause us to worship him like the disciples in the boat did. Because when all that was done and they sat down, they did not wonder at the fact that Peter had walked on water. They wondered at the fact that Jesus was truly the Son of God. God has a love language. I don't know if any of you have heard of that book by Gary Chapman, The Five Love Languages. This theory that we have five ways of giving and receiving love, gifts, quality time, words of affirmation, physical touch, acts of service. My wife, Jane, loves this book. She's used it on lots of people, including me, lots of times. She's used it on our kids. She used it on her parents. She even led some of the flower arranging class uh, down through various aspects of it. This love language is idea. God has a love language, and one of those love languages is obedience. If you love me, keep my commands. It's this statement of fact. Because obedience is this expression of friendship with him. It's worship to him. It's this act of faith. 1 Samuel 15, 22, we read, To obey is better than to sacrifice. They had all these sacrificial, all these things to do to have them forgiven of their sins, but they would do them without any heart reference to God. They would just do them like they're paying their dues. Have some money, have a sheep, have this. I've come, I'm here for 15 minutes, burn the heifer, whatever, we're off. That was their attitude, unfortunately. And God said, no, no, one act of obedience is better than these meaningless sacrifices. I think all of us would want to be more able, more anointed by God to be able to be involved in supernatural stuff. See more people healed. See more people saved. Command things in faith. Whatever our version of walking on the water might be, 
I certainly would want more of that. And uh, we would want more anointing. And yet, what I think we should be focusing on and the way to greater anointing is obedience. If you just chase after anointing without obedience, without the character, if God anoints you, you'll either blow up yourself or whatever you touch. We need to focus on obedience. Doing what Jesus says when Jesus says it. Not waiting till it's convenient, comfortable, safe, understanding. Not permanently weighing the cost-reward. Cost-reward. Not asking the question of the age. And the question of our age is this. What do I get out of it? What's in it for me? What's in it for, what do I get out of it? God, I think, wants all of us in different ways to step out of our boat, to trust him. And when we hear that command, even though it might seem risky, frightening, he's looking for a people who will be ready, who will be willing to obey. And you know, the place to learn this is not on some mission trip to the Arctic Circle, trying to convert polar bears for Jesus. It's not. It's just in everyday life. It's in everyday life. It's in the mundane. It's when no one's looking. It's when God whispers, I want you to do this. And you know it's God. You know it's God. You have a moment to make a decision. Shall I stand and be very rational? Wait, think, and da 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 da. Or am I obedient? It means obeying the commands Jesus has given us about how we spend our time, our money, our talents. Things like how we guard our hearts, how we guard our tongues, how we think more of others than ourselves. The culture we live in is full of invitations to self-fulfillment and self-discovery. It is the great journey into you. That's what it says. It's a great journey into you. Look inside. Look deep inside. You'll find the meaning and purpose to the world and everything in here. Truth is, though, we don't need to discover anything more about ourselves. Truth is this. In and of ourselves, we are nothing special. I've just saved you a lot of time and money buying books and going to various retreats. In and of ourselves, there is nothing special about ourselves. What we need to discover is more about Jesus. More about him, because he is pretty special, and he's more special than we know he is. And part of his specialness is this. If we are in him, and if we will allow his power to flow through us, and if we will be obedient to him, we get to be special. But it's the only way that we get to be really special. Jesus said, anyone who tries to find their life will lose it. Anyone who loses their life for the sake of the gospel will find it, the upside-downness of the kingdom. And the hope for the world is a church that lives in obedience to the king. And that is the foundation for the everyday supernatural, which is actually all about living out, day by day, Mary's advice. Do whatever he tells you. Thanks so much. Cheers. Thanks.